Welcome to the Danish National Biobank podcast. This is one of two specials from our symposium, Future of Biobanking at Medicon Village in Lund. This part is the unedited key talk by Mike Divers, head of the Karolinska Institute Biobank in Stockholm, Sweden. Thank you for the invitation to join. This is a really enjoyable um, symposium. It's the third time and it's it's great every time ever, so I'm very pleased and honored to be here. I, you gave me the, the, the very ambiguous title of KI Biobank, so I added to it uh, at the bottom here. I'm going to tell you about uh, some of the things we're doing in our biobank to um, uh, try and help make medicine more precise. So the, the way biobanking seems to be going is towards uh, what we're more and more calling precision medicine. I, by the way, I'm the head of uh, KI Biobank in Stockholm. Yeah, right. So much technology in this room. It's amazing. I put this in my pocket. Yeah, thanks, Christian. Uh, so our biobank is a university-integrated biobank. Uh, probably most of most of the biobanks around are integrated in, in hospitals. Ours is integrated in the university, and it's there specifically for the researchers as a, as a tool, as a core facility. We're driven only by specific research questions or studies designed to answer uh, um, projects that uh, researchers have in our, our university. Uh, and we're entirely independent of each project. Uh, we're there for the researchers in Karolinska Institute, but over the years we've built up uh, quite a lot of collaborations regionally and nationally and now internationally. And every time I come to a conference and listen, listen to presentations from my uh, Nordic partners, I'm always uh, pleased to be reminded of how it'd be good to collaborate more across the borders. Uh, like those uh, other biobanks, we're, we're, we try and automate everything we can to make it more um, reproducible uh, and increase the capacity. Because we're only collecting and using samples or handling samples on demand, uh, it's important for us to have a very high customer focus. We don't just automatically collect everything that passes our eyes. Uh, we have a very defined list of services and, uh, which come with fees. Like most other biobanks, we always struggle to make the economy go together, so we charge uh, fees to our users. Um, and we have to keep putting them up, unfortunately, because um, funding for biobanks, uh, it, it, to my mind, uh, is unacceptably low, and not just in Sweden. We put a strong emphasis on the use and access to the samples we hold, even though they, they enter our biobank associated with one or other principal investigator. Uh, we try and get that investigator to agree to the concept that they'll share them with other people. Um, sometimes that works, sometimes that doesn't. 
Uh, we've noticed over the years that most of our studies and, uh, and researchers uh, want to use their, their sample collections and their studies are designed to help make medicine more precise. I, Eva, when you invited me to the first of these, uh, these symposia three or four years ago, the whole um, theme was open access. Uh, and it's something that we firmly believe in with our biobank. But open access with biological samples is not quite as easy as it is with, with scientific literature. That's the subject of a different presentation I won't go into here. Here's a list of our sample, our, our biobank services. It's available on the, um, the internet uh, and it's fairly well defined and each service comes at a price, uh, which is how we make um, uh, the economy work. Over the years, our biobank has uh, grown and grown and grown and today we, we have samples from about um, nearly 700,000 donors uh, it's about 7 million samples, uh, about half a million, from about half a million, um, or rather we have DNA samples from about half a million of those donors. So it's become quite a big collection over the years. It's not all one cohort, like UK Biobank for instance. It's about 200 different sample collections related to 200 different studies. Uh, that sounds very nice. They're not uniform study designs, so they're all quite different. Uh, so it, it's a big biobank, it's quite rich, but it's not um, easily comparable bet between sample collections. We have a nice uh, spread of, of different cohorts in there. We have the Swedish twins in our biobank. We have what was promising to be the kind of Swedish equivalent of, of uh, UK biobank. Uh, but it's stopped. Uh, we only have samples in our, our cohort, prospective cohort from 40,000 donors, which is statistically too low to, to be a, of any significant value. I, we have a number of other cohorts and um, sample collections in there. It's enough about um, talking about the actual biobank, but what about the impact of it? Uh, as Christian presented over the years, we've seen that our, our users are publishing around about 100 um, peer-reviewed uh, papers every year based on the use of our biobank, uh, often quite significant um, impact factors of those publications. This is something that um, I, I said that we put our, we've tried to put our customers in the, in the centre. Um, I love all our customers, uh, but they frustrate me because they often don't bother to report back what their publications are. It's one of our success measures um, and it's difficult to track it. I'd be very keen to hear how other biobanks are doing this kind of thing. Probably the most valuable thing for us has been tracking some of that data and seeing what happens after the publications um, happened. Is the biobank supported research having an impact on, on, on healthcare? And that's what I want to spend most of the time of my talk talking about. One of the um, high impact out outcomes we've had from based on use of our biobank has been in prostate cancer. Uh, and this particular research group developed an alternative to PSA testing as a screening method for 
prostate diagnosis. It's a really clever scheme that over the years has started to come into clinical practice now uh, in Sweden and another, a number of other countries. It continues to measure PSA, a few other proteins related to PSA. But uh, as we've heard in other talks, we're also looking at uh, genetic signatures as well, SNPs um, uh, that are associated with risk for press, uh, prostate cancer. And combining that with some clinical data and family history and cooking that all down in an algorithm that gives what's turned out to be a lot more um, precise uh, estimation of prostate cancer risk uh, for men who are screened by this test. Uh, and in the biobank, we set up uh, what I think ended up as three fairly large cohorts to, to support this study. And they asked us to do the genotyping um, on those cohorts uh, to test whether this genetic panel was going to be of any value. And it turned out it was. Uh, and this publication came out uh, based on that. Where the, this is where one, one example where the researchers were very good to the biobank. They made uh, one of our staff uh, a joint author on this paper. Um, and it's turned out rather well. Uh, this alternative to PSA testing has, has shown a, a lot more precision compared to standard PSA testing. Uh, it's ended up with a 50% reduction in uh, doing biopsies um, because uh, it's shown that 50% of those are unnecessary and that it's quite a, a, a tough thing to go through. Uh, but it's, it's more sensitive. It's detecting 20% more aggressive cancers uh, even in uh, men who have low PSA values. Uh, it's more expensive, significantly more expensive than standard PSA testing, uh, probably about, by about tenfold. But because it's reducing biopsies by 50%, uh, the, the health economics are looking really good. So it's now starting to move into clinical practice. And over the last year or two, um, about 20,000 men have been routinely screened with this as a part of uh, clinical practice. The PI behind this study frequently gives us credit for um, being a, a, a key part in the development of the test and that's very nice for us to hear. Um, so he's, he's, he's done a good job of not just telling us about his publications. His study's moving on now and he's, uh, he and his colleagues are, are starting to look at um, uh, treatment therapies for uh, metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer, uh, a type of cancer that affects a significant number of men per year in Sweden and, and most other countries. Uh, there's more and more, there are more and more therapies becoming available, but there's a lack of predictive markers in clinical practice. And we know that um, even though more therapies are coming out, it's still something of a, a, a casino uh, visit uh, to know which ones work in which patient, patients. So the idea of this follow-on study is to, to look and see whether we can find biomarker signatures that, um, uh, that can be used to guide the choice of which, which of the newer therapies can be used. And that's exactly what's underway now. Uh, looking at some of the available biomarkers where there's already evidence uh, that they, they correlate with um, a particular type of mechanism that, that uh, can, can be associated with different drug therapies.
So that study is underway. We're collecting blood samples from, from the participants in that study. We're isolating circulating free DNA and characterizing it against a panel of, um, of SNPs that have been designed based on what I just told you. Uh, looking at muta mutations in 78 genes, uh, and we'll gather that up uh, into, a, into a way of, or it'll be tested whether we can use this as a, as a way to determine which therapy to, to give to which man. I, and that study, as I said, is underway. I want to turn to what has become a parallel study for breast cancer um, that has been a, a big part of our biobank activity over the last five to ten years. Uh, and this started with a very large prospective cohort uh, of 70,000 women who uh, donated their samples and their mammography DNA, and they filled in a, a, a survey uh, on their lifestyle and, and health status. Um, and this study took place between um, over a five-year period, uh, starting 2010. It's completed now, and it gave a lot of insights into risk prediction. It started to pave the way uh, for categorizing women um, for risk level of getting different types of breast cancer. A lot to do with genetic profile, but also a lot to do with mammography um, outcome. Uh, so they collected uh, and put in the biobank a huge amount of mammography screening data. This was put alongside a, a previous cohort of, from breast cancer patients, about 5,000 women uh, who were followed until 2016, uh, which has become a particularly high-impact biobank cohort. Uh, after the last talk, I'm not going to talk too much about polygenic risk score, but you can see that you can distinguish between uh, breast cancer patients who have some of the high-risk um, big-ticket uh, uh, mutations for breast cancer distinguished from, the, from those women who maybe don't have those but perhaps have a polygenic risk score that points to uh, other types of risk. So armed with that information or that, that way of assessing risk uh, amongst um, uh, uh, women, the PIs have now moved on to studies that are looking at different types, types of intervention. Uh, and we have three follow-on studies that are, are running right now. One of them is um, a, a risk model looking at uh, using that risk um, Rather, that was the, uh, the original study I talked about. The, uh, the study that's using that risk to, to look at a potential intervention is the idea of uh, using... Um, I'm going to flip on quite quickly to this. Uh, the idea of using tamoxifen as a, as a, um, a, a way of uh, reducing the risk of occurrence, not just the risk of recurrence. So for, for many years, tamoxifen has been used as a treatment um, to avoid recurrence uh, and it reduces the risk of, of breast cancer by about 50% but of course it's well known for unpleasant side effects that often lead to poor compliance in taking the drug. 
So the idea of testing it at lower doses to see if it's uh, protective against women, for women who have higher risk uh, is not an easy one to test. Uh, but by using the biobank, uh, uh, they've designed a study that um, is testing exactly this right now by looking at uh, breast density in mammography scan and using that as a pro proxy for, um, uh, for therapy response. Uh, so they're looking at um, different levels of tamoxifen uh, uh, and, and following up and looking at the way breast density changes according to those different uh, uh, doses of tamoxifen. The study's just uh, completed in, in uh, September. Uh, the last women, women finished the treatment then, uh, and now the data uh, gathering's going in. Uh, this study was done in, in the biobank, uh, and in the coming weeks, uh, they're going to be looking through uh, at the data. Uh, at the same time, we've, been, we've started to do some uh, genotyping of um, cytochrome polymorphisms against, uh, against a chosen panel uh, of SNPs. Uh, and we're, we're hoping that the study will, will get some uh, very interesting findings by the end of the year. Finally, then, part of uh, the effect is looking to see whether, um, rather than just continuing with the, the, the fairly simplistic idea of um, mammography screening for women, whether if you can identify women at higher risk, maybe they need a different kind of mammography screening uh, approach. And that's what the rest of the study is looking at. Uh, with the idea of, uh, for women who are maybe because of their, um, their blood profile and family history, uh, or genetic profile, I mean, uh, you can categorize them as high, medium, and low risk, and giving them uh, either a, an intervention, uh, an ordinary screening, or maybe reducing the screening level. Uh, and this study is under, underway now. So 60,000 women uh, screened at uh, the, the South, Suite, uh, South Stockholm Hospital every year are invited to participate. Uh, uh, they're planning on having around about 80,000 particip participating uh, and dividing them into a, a, an intervention, intervention cohort and a cohort who had just observed, a control cohort. Uh, when they follow this through, they'll take the, the, the women who appear to be at higher risk uh, and, uh, and then divide them up and look at alternative mammography profiling uh, ways to, to follow them. Um, this study is also underway and we, we expect to see the, the results coming out, out over the next year. So these, these are the examples I wanted to share with you today. We have quite a few others that are using the same kind of principles uh, to approach the, the question of if you can identify risk often based on understanding of complex genetics, are there things you can do about them? And we have a number of studies that uh, we're going to follow over the next couple of years. For me, what I've noticed over the last few years is a growing number of, uh, of really fantastic examples where you can see that uh, biobanking has helped medical research have a bigger impact that's more than just publishing papers in, um, in learned journals. 
I, and I've been just collecting these anecdotally over the years. I love coming to conferences like this. I love li listening to Christian Veen give a presentation. Every time I listen to you give a presentation, Christian, I pick up another great example. I got one today. I, I'm going to add it to my list. I think this is something that all of us who work in biobanking need to do, pick up the list of good examples because they're the things that um, help motivate, get more funding for doing this. Uh, they help, not just that, they, um, they help convince people that this is a good activity. As I said earlier, the funding in this area I think is, is criminally low. Uh, some biobanks have been fairly successful at getting good finance, but it's never secure. And I think this kind of activity and the research it's supporting is increasingly, because you can see in these examples, is increasingly becoming part of an improvement in public health. If we can convince the, uh, the patients that that's the case, and I don't think that, that, that's so hard to con convince them. If we can convince the politicians we, we vote in to give us more financing, I think we're going to improve public health. So the, the, the theme of this symposium this year was the future of biobanking. Predicting the future is always a high-risk activity for anybody. Some people, learned people, will tell you not even to bother, uh, but I couldn't help doing that. So what about the future? Are you pessimistic? Uh, is it going to be a bad future? Uh, uh, for many of us, we fight quite hard with legal constraints and ethical fears. Uh, uh, and sometimes that becomes quite paralyzing with what we want to do. This whole idea of, um, of uh, consent is a tricky one. I think the last of these symposia we had, there was a fabulous debate we had in the audience of consent. Uh, for anybody who was here, I think there was a presenter from Denmark who pointed out that um, most of us sign end-user license agreements uh, that are screens and screens worth of stuff, then you never read them, but you say, I agree. Uh, informed consent in biobanking and medical research, we tie ourselves in knots about it. Uh, but according to the presenter last, at the last symposia, symposium here, some of those informed consents can stretch to 30 pages and the, the patient says things like, I don't understand it, but if my GP tells me that it's good to do, then I'm probably going to do it. I, we've got to work these things through because we're still not really clear about them. Funding I've already talked about. I, if we don't collaborate together, our cohort sizes are never going to be big enough to do the kinds of things we want to do, and we've seen good examples of where the statistics just don't add up. And we need to make sure that the technology does deliver. I, I'm by nature an optimist, I, and I think the future is good for biobanking and good for everybody who uses biobanks, as long as they do it properly. I think we're going to see more research pro progress. We're going to see research that improves clinical practice, that improves health economics. I was really pleased to see a number of cases of drug development that is starting to be, be rescued. This fabulous place we're sitting in now I used to be a drug company. I, I used to work for this drug company. Uh, the last time I worked here, which was 10 years ago, they had a failure rate in phase two that was uh, around about 80%. Um, 
Biobanking, I hope, will help improve that failure rate. And we're seeing more and more examples of that happening. Every time we collect the examples and publicize them, we make sure that the general public gets reminded that this is a good activity, not a bad one. Uh, and actually, I think what we've heard today are a number of examples of things that are genuinely improving public health. So I'm optimistic about the future. Uh, but you can never really be sure about what's coming in the future. So we just have to look forward. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. If you haven't already, be sure to listen to the parent episode, Future of Biobanking, as well as the other biobanking special with Christian Wien, Head of Biobank Norway. <laughs>